Welcome back to Word and Table, a bi-weekly podcast on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here as usual with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Hello, Alex. Good to be back. Father Stephen is the director of St. Paul's House of Formation and the Greenhouse Movement and the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America. Uh, Today, Father Stephen... I have uh, a couple of I have a I have a, a quiz for you today. Um, <laughs> Is this a pop quiz? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, um, Happy Easter, by the way. Yes. Um, the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. Alleluia. Glad to be able to say that word again. Um, and this is, it's such a good season to go back and look at the words of Jesus mm-hmm. um, throughout his life because of seeing so many things point uh, toward his resurrection. Uh, so it's a good, good a time as any to go back and read the words of Jesus. But, you know, reading Jesus's words is not always so simple. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I'd hazard to say a lot of our, our listeners uh, could identify with me in this, but sometimes there are a few passages, things that Jesus says that are just not really obvious what he's talking about. <laughs> so I thought I'd throw a few of these at you today, if you, if you okay. don't mind. Well, let's, let's do it. Okay, the first passage I wanted to talk about, Father Stephen, is in Luke 16. It's the parable of the dishonest manager. He also said to the disciples, this is Jesus talking, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay, what's, what's not to love? <laughs> it's a funny story, right? Because there are other parables about you know wicked tenants and dishonest stewards and other people, and they're always the bad guy, the villain in the parable. But this time, uh, a dishonest uh, steward is the hero. What's what's going on here? I think um, I think a lot of our listeners might be unaware of what's actually going on, and so yeah, let's talk about how the scam. It's a scam. I okay, mean, so this is a scam. He really is dishonest. Here. Oh, yes, they tell yeah. us he is. I mm-hmm. mean, that's why he's fired. He's caught with his hand in the till. Okay. Uh, so he's, he is dishonest. There's no going around that. The scriptures describe him this way, you know, so he is dishonest. So, and the Lord doesn't praise him for his dishonesty. He praises him for his shrewdness. So what's the shrewdness? Let me tell you. Uh, Ritzers might not realize I'm a certified public accountant. I actually wrote a book on internal controls and fraud. And let me tell you what's going on. This is a very common scam. Let's suppose, um, Alex, that I'm working in a, in, a, in a movie theater, okay, and I'm selling tickets, and you're my buddy from back in high school or something, and you come up and I say, hey, look, you expect to pay $10 to get in. That's what it costs. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ring up a lower number. Uh-huh. Okay, but we'll split the difference. 
You're ready to pay ten dollars. I'll ring up eights. We'll each keep one. So I'll pay nine. You pay me nine. So you get your you so save get one dollar off, and I get one dollar. You get a dollar, and, and the owner's the worse off. I see. Okay. That's how the scam works. And that's what he's doing here. He says, "Here's your, you owe money. Let's write it down." Now, normally, this is where you split the difference. You say, "Okay, let me have my say." He doesn't ask for anything. Oh, he says okay. he's prepared to forgo it all. Why? He wants something, but he wants it later. He's willing to put off gratification. He said, I'd rather have them owe me a favor. I would rather invest in the future. Okay. I so, want them to owe me a favor because I'm going to need a favor because I'm going to be out of work. Okay. So instead of... Uh, Running me, with the money. Instead of me paying you getting a buck off of our deal, I get $2 off, but now... I get nothing. Yeah, but now I owe you a favor. Now you owe me a favor. Okay, I got you. So he's saying they know that you want to use money that way. That's a wise investment. That's probably better having you owing me a favor when I'm going to need a favor. He's better off than taking the money. And he says that's why worldly people understand that. You use money to buy your future, to prepare your future. Okay. He used the money to prepare the way for the future. So that's how Christians should be. We should be investing in our future. I see. I by see. giving to the poor. So this is about giving without expecting return. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, I would put it this way. You know what we're saying? We look upon money as a tool for something, a, a greater investment. Uh-huh. That we realize the money we give to the poor isn't lost. It's an investment in our future. Right. Right. That's why he said they'll, they'll welcome you into the internal habitations. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It's like, you know, they'll owe you a favor. Yeah. They'll, they'll be there waiting to welcome you. Okay. So and then he's using this, this, this uh, example of this, this con man, basically. Yeah. So even these guys understand this. Yeah. That's a constant theme with Luke is that worldly people get it. We claim, you know, it's funny, is we all seem to be, uh, you know, we all seem to 2020 vision when it comes to making money but are legally blind when it comes to the kingdom. <laughs> like there's another, another story he has. He said, look, you know, we talk about how difficult it is to, you know, to, to trade off things, you know, to, with our money and things. He said, guys, it's like this. He said, he, in Luke, the next chapter, he has two stories. Like he said, one, well, it's like this. Imagine this guy's in the pearl business and he finds the pearl that will make his career. Yeah. He said, he doesn't go, oh, gee, coming up with the money. He says, he runs to buy. He says, what an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't hesitate. This, what a deal. Right. The same thing a guy man finds treasure in a field. In uh-huh. the old, we have to understand in the ancient world, people didn't have banks. And so, you know, uh, most people just had to bury money with the way you dealt with valuables. Right. And under, under the law, if you bought a field and you found the treasure in it, it became yours if uh-huh. you owned the field. Right. So if somebody knows there's a treasure in a field... Imagine it's like buying the winning lottery ticket if you know it's the winning ticket and no one else knows. Right, right. This is a good deal. Everyone's going to, you beg, borrow, and steal to get the money to buy that ticket. Yeah, yeah. And so he's saying, isn't it funny how worldly people have their values in order? (laughs) They know what's important. They don't have any trouble making these decisions. We're talking about eternal life and we hesitate and we whine and moan. Yeah. He said, worldly people don't hesitate to buy the pearl of great price or to buy that land. Yeah, and how much greater is eternal life than financial so security? So this witness steward, he was in trouble. He said, look, I can't, you know, I'm too proud to beg, and I, I'm, I'm not any good, I'm, I'm, I can't dig, is what uh-huh. I'm going to do. I'm going to need favors. Yeah. So I need to use the money I do have <laughs> to start paving the way to the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is something kind of... Um, there's something kind of satisfyingly humble about this guy as well. He he understands his limits. He understands he's like I'm I'm too proud to beg. I still I, I I'm I'm gonna at least try and and do for me here. There's a little bit of of that when it comes to eternal life. It's like look I'm I'm a bad guy. Like I'm not I'm not going to naturally deserve this. I better um, I better put in to make it happen. He clearly knows what he wants and he's willing to pay the price to get it. Yeah. And he's saying that's how we should be looking at it. He said worldly people figure this out. 
Worldly people know how to make sacrifices for their careers. Why can't we make sacrifices for the kingdom? Okay, wow. All right, so next one, Mark 8. Um, and that's when Jesus heals a blind man in a really curious way. Um, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Okay, so uh, this is interesting to me because, uh, you know, I, we, just like everyone, I'm sure, we do a lot with uh, computers, and I feel like there are uh, times when I'll, my computer will glitch up and I'll have to sort of reboot it. And this reminds me a little bit of what's going on here is Jesus just not very good at healing. He's like, Oh, I didn't quite get it right the first time. Let me, let me, let me, let's, let's, let's do a soft, hard reboot and and try again. Okay. Now it works. (laughs) It's right. It's sort of like scandalous. Like, is is he having a bad day? (laughs) And of course not. That's the whole point of the story is the Mark. And it's interesting. Only Mark tells us the story, the earliest of the gospels. But for a very, very special purpose. Remember, the main theme of Mark's gospel, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, is that you don't really get who Jesus is until you understand his victory is the cross. Yeah. And, you know, everyone was expecting this worldly king, a worldly victory. He said, no, no, you don't really get it. So this is telling us how to interpret what's about to happen in the very next passage. The very thing passage after this. Remember, Jesus, who do people say that I am? Mm-hmm. And people start saying, well, some say Elijah or John the Baptist, either, but who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up with an incredible profession of faith. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Matthew's gospel says, flesh and blood isn't real. This is real. He's seeing something. Yeah. But then Jesus says, you know, I'm going to die. And I'm going to die and rise again. And that Peter says, oh, God forbid. Right. And he says, get behind me, Satan. So the point is, Peter could see when he saw Jesus as the victorious. He, he, it's true Jesus is the Messiah. He could see, but he could see. He didn't, he didn't have clear vision. So, was, yeah, so he was seeing Jesus, but in a, in a blurry way. Right, right saying that this okay. isn't the end of the story. It's yeah. a start. It's okay. a good start. The man before had been completely blind. Now he's seeing. Yeah. But that's not the end. Until you can see Jesus is victorious on the cross. Because Peter's saying, yes, you're the Messiah, but God forbid that you would actually have anything bad happen to you. Okay, okay. It's yeah. only when you get both that you see clearly. So it's one thing to say Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to see, as it says, that he reigns from the tree. Mm-hmm. Okay, so next one is uh, Mark 11, uh, the cursing the fig tree. Okay, um, and this, this comes from in, in a couple of parts. So, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Skipping down a little bit, Jesus cleanses the temple. And then in verse 20, picking up, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Mm-hmm. 
Well, this often scandalizes people because why does Jesus seem to have it out for the fig tree given the fact it's not fig season? Yeah, that's always my question. It's like, well, you should have known it's not fig season, man. I mean, Well, actually, there's a real point when Mark's emphasizing this. Do you see, here's the trouble. If we didn't have that, we would think that it's simply a matter that this is irritation. Hmm. You know, well, you don't do it well. Wham. Hmm. And it's not. The point is, this is a prophetic gesture. Remember, we had the prophets in the Old Testament do dramatic things. Yeah. Like, remember with the loincloth and burying it and these kinds, they do dramatic things that were prophetic gestures. Yeah. And the important thing is that they not be misunderstood as not being prophetic. Okay. So this wasn't irritation that, gee, I'm hungry and I can't get anything, so I'm going to curse the tree. Uh-huh. It's trying to, so there could be no doubt about it. This isn't at all about really expecting to eat fruit here. Okay. What it's really about is this is meant to show something more important. I see. And what he's telling particularly, but you say, Mark loves these sandwiches uh-huh. uh, where you have, you know, the, it has both sides of the cleansing of the temple. The way they would have looked at it is, look, trees do two things. They, they have leaves which feed them and they produce fruit which feed others. Mm-hmm. And what had gone terribly wrong with the temple is this was all supposed to be about Israel's role was to be a blessing to the nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And instead of that, they were keeping it all for themselves. Mm, okay. All leaves, no fruit. Matter of fact, Mark makes it a point. I believe so if you, can, you look at your passage there, that Mark actually refers to, you've, uh, uh, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations, but you've made it in a thief. Why does Mark make, have the whole verse there? It's because you know where they were selling the stuff? Is they were actually, there was a court of the Gentiles, the only part of the temple non-Jews could go into. Mm. And they conveniently basically took their space in order to to set up stalls. I see. Okay. So the the point is Israel's role in the role of the temple uh, was was to be a blessing to the nations. They were going to be the point of faith where people met the God of Israel, which is the God of the world. Yeah. yeah. Instead, they had isolated themselves and been all about themselves. The whole temple apparatus became about the the, the, rule, the rulers and the elders. It okay. became about them. And he said it's like a tree that just bears just has leaves, never bears fruit. Okay. There's not much use for it, and yeah. it's going to shrivel up. And this is, again, in the context of what's going to happen to explain the, the destruction of the temple. I see. This is okay. all going to go away. It'll never bear fruit again. It's over. And the fig tree being out of season is just, this is setting off that, hey, Jesus is, is giving a, a speech act sort of thing. He's, exactly. This yeah, is an object lesson. Right. It's not that he got irritated. He didn't get mad. Yeah. <laughs> we have the same thing, if you think about it, in John's gospel with, with what sometimes is misunderstood, where uh, with the first miracle, the, the first sign is at Cana in Galilee. Mm-hmm. And Mary uh, tells him, his mother, it's only described as the mother of Jesus. She says, they're out of wine. He said, well, that's what's that to us. This is my hour. And then he goes ahead and does it. Well, some people say, well, did Mary persuade him? I think the more reasonable explanation, what they're trying to tell us is Jesus didn't use his divine powers to take care of practical needs. Okay. In the sense of, gee, instead of going out to buy, I guess we'll just make some. Uh Is he's pointing out this isn't an ordinary thing. Uh Uh-huh. You know, this is not, this, my, I'm not in the business of this, but it will be a sign. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a warning to us that this is not to be interpreted as, gee, uh, Jesus, who's truly God and truly man, was sort of cheating on the truly man stuff because he just mm-hmm. uses his divine powers for regular human stuff. Right. Right. These are these are always signs of. These are signs. They're, 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 they're not. He, you know, he is a true human being like us. He yeah. only uses these as signs. Fascinating. Okay. Next one. Mark five. He Jesus heals a man with a demon. And um, some pigs reap the whirlwind. So uh, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now let me guess what you're concerned about the pigs. Yeah, (laughs) pigs are real cute. And, you know, but but they're, and they're also real good to eat. And it seems like Jesus doesn't really respect either of these uses of pigs right now. (laughs) Well, I think we might, there's a a profound purpose here that we might miss, a sacramental purpose. Remember we talk about sacraments, uh, one way of looking is is a mystery, as we say, the Greek word mysterion, Mm -hmm. is a visible, something we can see, a visible indicator of an invisible reality. Mm -hmm. And here's what it's really about with the pigs. Uh, One thing, just as a footnote that might be interesting to some of our listeners, is, you know, they'd say, well, gee, pigs are unclean animals, but they're missing something. Actually, it's the opposite in the ancient world for non-Jews. Pigs were a sign of richness and fatness. Anyone who loves bacon and ham understands that. Yes. And so they were actually routinely used in pagan sacrifices. So they were also connected. It wasn't like some dirty, unclean meat that, uh, because you couldn't afford better. No, no. Uh, It was was highly prized, but it's very much associated with pagan sacrifices Mm. and things. But the real point of the pigs is the guy says, Jesus says to him, what's your name? He says, well, my name, it's our name. We're legion. Mm. You know, a legion would be several thousand troops. Could be anywhere. Roman legions varied in size, 2,000, 4,000 right. in there. And so what happens here, let's face it, if we didn't have the sign, we would have said, yeah, the guy said that, but you know, he is crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do we know it's real? How do we really know? And so this is, this is a way of dramatically showing us this is no figure of speech. Yeah, no, it's really. It's a beautiful, dramatic thing of saying this is not a figure of speech. Okay. The man was possessed by a legion of demons. So it's uh-huh. a beautiful sacramental sign that we might have missed. We might have just said, oh, this is words of hyperbole. Actually, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So the pigs show us that this, no. this guy really was tormented. Jesus really did, uh, really did release all these demons. Why yeah. are the people afraid of. Uh, why are people so afraid at the end there and, and beg him to leave? 
Oh, actually, that's a tip we've, we've had routinely in the, um, in the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord comes, for example. The normal reaction when you realize you're in the presence of divinity is fear. Mm-hmm. And they're seeing what's going on. I think, you know, that something, this is something way out of the ordinary is happening. Something scarily holy. Okay, yeah, yeah. There are people, obviously, they're, they're unhappy about the loss of property and things, but the way they talk about fear is probably the fear is, again, that's the evidence that you're running across God. I see. When you I run see. across God, you're the normal thing. That's why the angel always say, don't be afraid. Right, right. Be not afraid. Uh-huh. Okay, okay, wow. Um, okay, uh, Mark 9. Um so uh, this one, this one honestly has, has it, it. This one used to give me a lot of trouble. Um, where Jesus promises people that they won't see death before he, he comes again in glory. But let me just uh, read the passage. And he said to them, "Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power." Okay, this one was hard for me because uh, last I checked, he's uh, addressing an audience of people who lived in the first century. And here we are in 2018, and I always thought, is he talking about the end times, the second coming of Christ? Obviously, that's not going to happen, and these people died. So what's going on here? Well, actually, the, the Gospels give us a very clear indicator, indication of what, what's going on here. By the way, it's interesting. This is for people who are unbelievers. I mean, the real thing. I mean, unbelievers in, in universities and things. There are two verses that even the worst unbelievers typically say, like in the Jesus Seminar, say, there's no question that Jesus of Nazareth must have said this. Okay. There's no way it would have been preserved if he hadn't. This okay. is one of yeah. two. The other is Jesus saying on divorce. Mm-hmm. There's just no possible way people would have kept it if there was just no denying it. Yeah, yeah. But there's, a, there's an explanation that we're actually given, if you look at it, in each, this is mentioned by each of the three synoptic gospels. In each one of those Gospels, uh, this is immediately followed by something else. I would like you to read the very next verse in what you have there. The very next, you read verse 1, I believe, of Mark 9. Read verse 2. Okay, okay. And after six days. That's it. After six days. (laughs) Okay. And then we're going to have the transfiguration. Right, right. And you're going to find that every one of the the three synoptic gospels will immediately use a unit of time. It's after six days or once it's after eight days. And why would it be a difference? Because it's a question, are you talking about full 24-hour days or portions of days? I see. Okay. It's it's like in in countries like France and things, you say, if you want to say a week from today, you say eight days from today. I see. Okay. You know, it's uh, it's about how would you count whole days or portions. But the point is, each one of them make it a point to directly tie the next episode to what was just been said. And the next episode is Christ appearing, it says, you know, in, in this glory, in his transfigured glory. Oh. With Moses and Elijah. And so the, I think that so they would actually have a taste of what that would look like, people mm. standing there. So that's the traditional explanation. I think that's what, um, uh, what you can see. It's clearly it's meant to point that way in the text. So he's talking about the transfiguration. Yes, each of the okay. three immediately followed, not only followed by the episode, but hook it with a timeline. Okay. And say, lest you miss this, six days later. Okay. You know, eight days later, to die, and again, the eight or six, depending on whether you count full days or partial days. I see, I see. Okay, so let's talk about the transfiguration. Wow, all right, so that's easy enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, last one, Stephen. Um, in Luke 14. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes. And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Um, yeah, I have, uh, is, is Jesus asking me to, um, 
really to, to actually hate my, my family. It seems kind of uh, at odds with honoring your father and mother. Well, of course, he is doing no such thing. Okay. But we know that. <laughs> First of all, we have, we have the parallel passages, which phrase it differently. Uh, you know, I love father more than me. Mm. But this gets the real answer. Is again, even though the, the texts are written in, um, in Greek, of course, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. And this, is, uh, this really reflects something that's true about Hebrew and Aramaic, Semitic languages that we don't have. It's a, we, ha- we have a defective pair in English. Here's what I mean by a defective pair. Uh, you know, like we talk about love and hate, you know, we have, we have opposites, antonyms. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in English, if you have to choose between two things, let's say two great things. Do you want a chocolate shake or, or a vanilla shake? And you have to choose one. You can't have both. Which do you want, chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. And we, we, we have a verb. We call that prefer. So okay. we have the, the verb that means this is the one I choose. If I have to choose, here's the one I choose. It's mm-hmm. called prefer. But we don't have any way to describe the one that we don't choose. We don't have a verb. We could say we could say not prefer or something. Deep disprefer. <laughs> but, yeah. But we don't have a verb for it. Well, in Hebrew and Aramaic and things, you do. Okay. That's what love and hate are. I see. Love and hate don't always. We always assume those being emotional words. Mm-hmm. You know, a great affection or a great emotion. But actually, they're also the words to describe when you get a choice. The one you choose is the one you love, and the one you don't choose is the one you hate. It has no. It has no sense necessarily of antipathy. I see. I see. So I think what we have here is a very colorful, you know, relying on the underlying language. Mm-hmm. Is uh, that is, is that the same thing? You were saying it's in Hebrew and Aramaic that this is the case? Yes. Mm-hmm. So is it the same thing when it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's in the yeah. context of preferring. You know, yeah. he preferred one as opposed to... We, have, and it's, we can show in the, New, in the Old Testament, for example, it talks about, uh, you know, with Rachel and Leah and things. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to believe he hated Leah. I was simply saying he preferred Rachel. Okay. Yeah. But again, in Hebrew, you'd express that. He loved the one because hated can mean antipathy but it also can mean anytime you have a choice and you have to choose one versus the other the one you choose you love and the one you don't choose you hate okay so it's used in a non-emotive sense i see i see and that's really the way to understand it basically saying it really came down to it you know which would you choose mm-hmm. and if it came down to it, it has to be everyone even father mother children wife would be the not chosen category if it becomes me and someone else everybody else has to be in the not chosen category if it ever came to that Great. Well, thanks, Father Stephen. That's all the time we have left for this uh, episode. And thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.